Hello and welcome to the Mile End Institute podcast, which is coming to you from Queen Mary University of London. I'm Dr. Colin Murphy, one of the deputy directors at the MEI, and in today's episode, we will be discussing the political economy of inflation. For better or worse, inflation has returned to the political agenda. In Europe, wholesale gas prices are currently about five times their value last year. And the economy is also emerging from the depths of the pandemic, with associated risks of bottlenecks, supply shocks and debt overhangs. Meanwhile, Britain, Ireland and Western Europe are grappling with actually existing Brexit. In combination, this means that in the UK, the prospect of higher energy bills is accompanied by a logistics crisis, symbolised by shortages of lorry drivers and fruit pickers, and fueling talk of both higher wages and higher prices. And lest we forget too, the price of housing continues to grow at astonishing rates. In the corridors and perhaps the Zoom meetings of high politics and high finance, all these pressures are leading to worries about inflation and accompanying instability in the markets. Some months ago, central banks like the Federal Reserve of the United States asserted that inflationary pressures would be merely transitory or short-term as we recover from the pandemic. But that belief is becoming increasingly controversial. There are three interrelated questions at the heart of these debates. Are we seeing a return to higher levels of inflation beyond the immediate term? What would cause such a shift? And finally, if higher inflation is back, does it matter as much as other challenges like inequality or the climate crisis? This debate is not just for economists. Any policy shift to take action on inflation would have political implications. So the debate about inflation is also necessarily a debate about state welfare, investment and debt, about the Green New Deal, about the proper role of central banks in democracies and a globalised dollar-based economy, about geopolitical relations with Russia and the Middle East, and about wages, immigration, housing, social class and inequality. To take us through these issues, we're delighted to be joined by two expert guests. Our first guest is Duncan Weldon. Duncan is an economist, author and journalist. He has written for The Economist and Prospect and presented for BBC Newsnight, having previously worked in fund management and in public policy. His first book, 200 Years of Muddling Through, The Surprising Story of Britain's Economy from Boom and Bust and Back Again, was published this year. We're also delighted to welcome Helen Thompson, who is Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge. She is also a regular panellist on the Talking Politics podcast and a columnist for The New Statesman, where she writes on everything from geopolitics and finance to the Constitution and the European Union. She is currently working on the political economy of energy and has published on the oil crises of the 1970s and the 2000s. Welcome to you both and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you too. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I thought I'd start with a deceptively simple question, which I might go to Duncan first, but Helen, please chip in whenever, which is, what is inflation and what causes it? Well, that, that, that is a deceptively simple question, but um, you know, putting on my economist hat, um, it's, it's quite a hard one to answer. Okay, so at a, at a very, very straightforward level, 
you know, inflation is just um, the rise in the aggregate level of prices. And I think it's really important that we're clear that, you know, when economists talk about inflation, they're talking about the aggregate price level rising, you know, the total of all prices. It's not, you know, it's different to a shift in relative prices. You know, if the price of apples is going up and the price of oranges is not, then what you're seeing is a shift in relative prices, apples becoming more expensive relative to oranges. With inflation, we're talking about everything, you know, all prices rising at the same time. And, you know, and a bit of inflation is good. You know, the general consensus out there in sort of academic macroeconomics out there in public policy amongst policymakers is that low and stable inflation is good. It sort of smooths the wheels of growth. Um, falling prices, deflation, that, that that's bad and dangerous, causes all sorts of problems. High and volatile inflation is usually seen as a problem too. That causes um, a different set of problems. So what policymakers generally aim at is inflation around the 2% mark. Now, what causes inflation though? Well, um, I think it's fair to say it's sort of the economics profession and policymakers are having something of a crisis of confidence about what causes inflation. So Charles Goodhart, very distinguished macroeconomist, former Bank of England policymaker, professor at the LSE, he was speaking at the ECB's, the European Central Bank's sort of get-together of economists um, last month. And he said, you know, the problem at the moment is we, we don't have a theory of inflation. We used to have two. We had sort of a, a Keynesian theory built around the Phillips curve that inflation was related to unemployment and unemployment was very low, inflation was higher. And that relationship broke down. And we had the sort of Milton Friedmanite explanation that inflation was caused by too much gun- too much money chasing too many goods. And then that theory broke down. And what we've had for the last sort of 20 years in sort of policymaking is a theory that inflation is really determined by expectations of inflation. And that's quite a reassuring theory for central bankers, because if inflation is just determined by expectations of future inflation, then your job is just to control inflation expectations. But now you're seeing quite a strong pushback within economics saying, actually, that theory doesn't really work either. The the empirical basis for it is quite weak. The theoretical basis for it is quite weak. So I think the answer to your deceptively straightforward question, what causes inflation is, at the moment, we don't know. I mean, I agree with Duncan, both in his analysis of how we conceptualise or can conceptualise inflation and the problems that we now have in understanding its causes. I think one of the things that's really interesting when we look back to the, the 70s is that part of the politics of the 1970s was actually about who had the best interpretation of what caused inflation. So it really did matter in political terms whether inflation was, as the monetarist claim, people like Milton Friedman, that inflation was only always and only a monetary phenomenon pertaining to the money supply, or whether inflation had to be understood in terms of aggregate demand in the economy. And there was a a fairly predictable relationship between inflation and unemployment. I think that the one of the reasons why neither was in the end a very convincing explanation of what happened in the in in the seventies and some of the difficulties that we can then see sort of moving on I would say into the later latter part of the 90s when this whole issue of conceiving inflation in relation to 
inflation expectations really took hold is, is that neither the monetarists nor the Keynesians were really in a very good position to get to grips with the energy aspects of the inflation of the 1970s. So at the centre of it, if you just looked at what actually happened at the time in economies, in Western economies, and in, in, in particular, I would include in that Japan um, here, what were the oil price shocks, the, the, the first one in 1973 and the, and, the, and the second one in 1979. And the nature of oil as a commodity means that, or as an energy source, I should say, and a commodity, means that increases in the price of oil spread out through the whole of the rest of the economy because oil is so consequential to, to modern economy. So I think part of the difficulty of understanding the causes of inflation is arises from we, we haven't really got to grips in lots of ways with understanding the role that energy plays, not just in its own terms in economies, but really the way in which it works in a systemic way through them. I think that's fair. And I think it's worth saying as well, you know, I completely agree with Helen that, you know, understanding the politics of the 1970s and sort of the politics of economic policymaking. Yes, I mean, the, the, these competing theories of inflation became politicised and different political actors were using them in different ways. But, you know, it's worth going back and we're talking about the political economy of inflation. You know, inflation is political because inflation tends to redistribute income around the economy. You know, at a really straightforward level, generally, um, you know, in periods of high inflation, the real value of debt um, falls. So, you know, inflation tends to redistribute um, resources away from creditors and towards debtors. And, you know, by the nature of creditors and debtors, creditors tend to be um, better off. Um, than debtors, you know, there, there, there is there is there is a political dynamic to you know this macroeconomic indicator. I suppose one implication of what you're saying is that the oil price crash of the mid '80s was just as significant as the oil price surge in um, uh, shaping inflationary outlook in in the global north. Am I right in that? Yeah, I think that you can't really understand the fall in inflation um, after that period of high inflation from the 70s and the early 80s without bringing not just the oil price crash in 1986 into the the picture because clearly there'd been a significant move down in inflation before then but the fact that oil prices peaked and so although it's certainly true I think that the monetary policies pursued by the Federal Reserve Board under Paul Volcker played their part in bringing inflation down not least actually by directly producing unemployment and allied with the moves that various Western governments made um, to make it harder for trade unions um, to strike, to pursue wage claims, had their effect. If it had been the case that there had been another oil price surge, rather than the OPEC's position in geopolitical sense was weakened by at least 1982-1983, the inflation story coming out of the 80s and into the mid 80s would be would have been different. So I, I think that the, the the fall in oil prices in the 1980s uh, is a pretty important part of the lower inflation story once we've got out of the, the, the first couple of years of the uh, of the 80s. Um, yes. And I think that that does mean that it's quite difficult if you follow the through the implications of that, that it that it is quite difficult to have some concept of inflation in modern economies that doesn't make energy quite central to it. You mentioned 
the trade unions there. And one theory we haven't really mentioned so far is trade union strength in shaping inflation. People often talk about a wage price spiral as being important in uh, determining whether inflation becomes dangerous or not, quote unquote. Do you want to explain what that is and why labour organisation matters in this question? Yes. Yeah, so if you get an initial spike in prices, you know, an initial increase in inflation, if you have a well-organised, by which I mean um, well-unionised labour force with high trade union density or coverage or both, if they can see that inflation is increasing and prices are increasing, you know, naturally, they'll want to protect their real income. They might even want their real incomes to grow. So they will bargain for higher wages to protect themselves. When people talk about a wage price spiral, what they're talking about is a situation in which you know, the labour force can see inflation is rising. So they bid up, um, they bargain up their wages um, to protect themselves. That increases costs on employers and maybe squeezes their profit margins. So they increase prices um, you know, to protect their own profit margins. In response, the union movement bids up wages again. You get into this bidding war. People talk about a wage price spiral. Um, there were certainly some of those dynamics at play in the 1970s. But, you know, as Helen was just saying, we're in a very different world now. You know, you, you can tell two stories of the last 30 years, two stories of what people used to call the great moderation from, you know, the early 90s until the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. You had this sort of 15 years of less macroeconomic volatility, lower inflation. Now, one story is a story rooted in changes in the economy. So you didn't get, as Helen was, you had lower oil prices, lower energy prices, as Helen was saying. You had a radically different labour market with much weaker trade unions, much lower trade union density, much tougher trade union laws across most of the advanced economies. You had a more globalised world with, um, you know, more in-depth supply chains, the end of the Cold War, China's entry into the global economy. And all of these were deflationary forces. More liberalised labour markets, lower energy prices, bigger um, global manufacturing chains. And that, that, that's one story that will explain lower inflation in the 90s and 2000s. Or you've got the story that central bankers tend to prefer, which is a story in which central bankers are the heroes. And what happened was central bankers got better at managing the economy. Their theories got better. Their models got better. You had these independent central banks targeting inflation. They were credible. Because they were credible, inflation expectations became, in the jargon, well anchored. And this is a story of lower inflation in the 90s and 2000s, not because of structural changes in the economy, but because central bankers were put in charge and knew what they were doing. And they're, they're quite different stories. And central bankers, as you can imagine, tend to prefer the second story. Yeah, I think that what's really interesting about this, the, the, the great moderation um, decades, as they're called, is really the period from about 2004 uh, to the crash in 2007, 2008, because if you looked at what was going on where energy was concerned, both um, oil and gas, but most consequentially oil, you start to see a really sharp increase in the prices of oil. They reached their highest ever price in June of 2000 and 
eight, you know, nearly twice as high as what they are at the moment. And this was a major, major oil shock caused both by the spectacular rise of Asian demand, not just China's, but India's too, and also supply side problems and sense that for various somewhat largely, but not entirely geopolitical reasons, um, oil production stagnated around 2005 until the shale boom came along later. And you do see the central bankers very worried about the consequences of this oil price shock in that period. And the Fed starts to raise interest rates in the latter part of 2004 on the assumption that this energy price shock is going to have secondary effects. And by that, they meant it's going to lead to increased wage demands in response to that. That was a kind of like revisiting really their understanding of the 1970s and saying that we need to use monetary policy preemptively against that, which is what the Fed did until it started worrying in 2007 about the consequences for the American economy going into recession, which it did in the last quarter of that year. So I think what they'd misunderstood was actually you couldn't read off from having an energy price shock, which was in itself inflationary, into thinking that actually the 1970s would be replayed and you had to try to, to avoid that. The, the trade unions weren't in, able in anything like the same way to pursue wage demands in the way in which they had in the 70s. And the reason why that oil price shock from about 2004 to mid-2008 didn't have the same inflationary impact in itself, leaving aside its secondary consequences in relation to wages, was because the integration of China into the world economy was acting as a really quite significant um, deflationary force, pushing down prices in quite a number um, of sectors where um, Chinese exports were important. So in one sense, I think that at that moment when we could see something happening on inflation again, that the the, the central bankers didn't particularly trust their new version of, oh, we know how to do this now. They went back to a 1970s understanding of it or one version of a 1970s understanding of it and not seeing what had both politically changed in terms of trade unions and what had economically changed in terms of China. I agree entirely. When I'm thinking about macroeconomics, I always sort of try and stick to the dictum that models are useful, but it's much better to think in terms of mechanisms than models. So, you know, a model a model tells you what's going to happen. Thinking in terms of mechanisms means don't think that X leads to Y. Think what is the mechanism through which X affects Y. And I think you're completely right. That, that sort of early 2000s, oil price rise, there were a lot of people who saw oil prices rising. They had a mental model of the 1970s, thought, okay, so you're getting an energy price spike. Workers are going to want to protect themselves by bidding up wages. But the mechanism through which workers could bid up wages wasn't working in the same way anymore. I I was working at the Bank of England in 2004 when um, I think oil past $50 a barrel for the first time. And, you know, this this was seen as a really large event. And then you fast forward four years to that peak in sort of June, July, just before um, Lehman's, um, June, July 2008, when I think the peak in oil was about $147 a barrel. You know, it, it had trebled in four years. And th- this was just an inconceivable number. I, I couldn't think of oil as being $147 a barrel. I used to think, you know, that's that's $47 a barrel, which is a really high price for oil, plus another $100. But despite that big run-up in energy prices, I mean, you know what, headline inflation was what, about 25 3% at that point? It, you know, it was nowhere near 
the numbers we'd seen in the 1970s or indeed even in the early 1990s. The mechanisms weren't working in the same way. It's very interesting too how the importance of of China's changing role in the global economy has has really really like had a material effect on inflation in the global north in that period. And it raises the question about what's going on in the Chinese economy today. I mean, they're having troubles with coal and they're having a financial crisis, but they're having inflationary pressures in China too. Does that change the picture from 15 years ago? Yeah, I think that it does. I don't think that that means that we should rule out the possibility of another, let's call it deflationary event or deflationary process coming out of China because the energy crisis that China is in is not the only difficulty that they have at the moment. And we can see that as what's playing out in the property market and the potential, though it's hard to see from the outside how much potential there is for financial contagion spreading through the rest of the economy as a consequence of it. But if we just think of it in terms of the specific deflationary pressure that China put on the world economy in those years. It came from the particular way it was pursuing export-led growth at the time. And China is not pursuing the same kind of, quite the same kind of economic strategy as it then was. And so I don't think that we could expect that there would be the same counter-inflationary pressure that China brought in that period, 2004, 2008, in an ongoing sense. So there could be, I think, and I don't think this should be underestimated, the potential for a more like a deflationary event coming out of, of China or tied up or bound up with the issue of, of its property sector and its relation to the financial system in China. The fairest thing to say at the moment is that the global inflationary outlook for the advanced economies is incredibly uncertain. We've had a big spike in inflation. You know, compared to the 70s, it's still moderate, but, you know, CPI inflation is rising at over... annually in the US. It's almost certainly going to get above 4% here in Britain in the um, by the end of the autumn, similar numbers across Europe. I mean, these are these are high numbers, relative to recent experience, the debate is how transitory or temporary is that going to be? Is this just like the aftermath of the pandemic and supply chain disruptions? Or has there been a, a structural shift in the economy? I do think it's worth stepping back for a second and saying, you know, on one level, this is a nice problem to have. I mean, you know, if, if the, the counterfactual that the pandemic, the macroeconomic policy that went with it was much more restrictive, if we'd had much tighter fiscal policy, much tighter monetary policy, then, you know, if, if we were in a world in which unemployment was still above 10%, you wouldn't have firms complaining about labour shortages you probably wouldn't struggle to find as many warehouse workers and fruit pickers and people to work in abattoirs. And yet you wouldn't have these same sort of supply chain pressures. You wouldn't have inflation rising at the same pace, but you would have unemployment above 10%. So, you know, given a choice between the two, I would choose where we are relative to that counterfactual. The issue of whether inflation is transitory at the moment is hard. I mean, I lean to the side that it isn't transitory and it's more structural. But that doesn't mean that all aspects of what's going on at the moment are structural. And I would try to to break it up and say, so as we can see, there's three things going on. There's labour shortage issues, there's shipping cost issues, and the and shipping cost issues have the ability to to spread through supply chains. And then there's energy issues 
And in particular, though not exclusively, there's the extraordinary rise in the price of natural gas, particularly natural gas as consumed um, in Europe. So if you want some point of comparison there, the equivalent of natural gas prices for Europe at the moment runs another $50 higher than that $150 for ish for oil in June um, 2008, at least the spot prices do. So I think we can say that there's some reasons at least to think that the labour shortage, probably transitory, but at least that we can under, we can understand that there's been a, a shock in some sense to labour markets brought about by the pandemic. And that will be ongoing in the sense it won't be a, it won't be a static um, situation and the consequence of it might well be that actually in certain sectors that there will be higher wages that will in some sense will become the the new norm without becoming something that drives inflation upon a month by month basis that we just adjust to higher wages in certain sectors i think that the the shipping cost issues is bound up with the china question. And I think one thing that's a little bit underestimated in the analysis of this is the way in which actually the effectively zero COVID policy in China has played its part here in shutting ports or at least reducing activity at ports at certain times and giving China's centrality to world trade. If China's going to have an ongoing willingness to basically shut down economic activity or partially close economic activity and ports um, around trying to to eliminate um, COVID cases, that isn't actually going to go away without a change of policy. The third one is where I don't think it's transitory, it's structural, and that's the energy situation. There are reasons why gas prices and oil prices are on an upward trajectory. Now, at a certain point, that stops being inflationary because they 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 plateau out. So actually, the, in some sense, the more striking period of of high oil prices in the last decade because it lasted was the period from like 2011 to really the autumn of 2014 that they had started coming down in June of 2014. Because then you got a sharp rise in 2011, which did have inflationary consequences. And the the central banks, or at least I rephrase that, one central bank, the European Central Bank, responded to that inflationary pressure from oil prices by hiking interest rates twice in 2011. The Fed and the, the Bank of England let it go and sucked up the inflation, which in Britain's case was above 5%. But then they plateaued out at a fairly high level above the $100 a barrel. And they stop at that point being inflationary because you're not keep having a higher increases. Now, that's an interesting period because generally oil prices, are, uh, if, we, if we exempt what happened in the 1950s and the 1960s, if we look at what happened since the first oil price shock, is they tend to be more erratic than that. So they've got the potential either to be forcing prices down or acting as an anti-inflationary force or acting as an inflationary force. But we had that period after 2011 through to mid-2014 where they plateau at a high price. And I think something like that might actually be possible this time around as well. What we don't know is is like what the pl- what the place where they might plateau would be. And I should say that 
gas is a and gas is what's been driving things is I just think it's a lot harder to understand the way in which gas prices work in relation to in inflation than oil because lots of thought went into at least trying to understand what the relationship between oil prices and inflation were less thought has gone into I think trying to understand what the relationship is between gas prices and inflation the gas price is very volatile if you look at a gas price chart sometimes it just goes parabolic you know it just spikes upwards what you're like what you're seeing at the moment and that's I mean that's because it's a it's a market where it's hard to bring more supply, supply on stream quickly. It's hard to store the stuff, all of that. So, you know, the way the market regulates itself when there's an imbalance between demand and supply is not that supply responds quickly. It's that the price shoots up quickly to the point it starts destroying demand. Um, and I think that, you know, that, 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 that's the worry, isn't it? That, you know, the way the gas market regulates itself is the price just rises to the point when industrial users can't afford the stuff anymore. And you start seeing production shutdowns to take gas demand out of the market. You know, I mean, that, that, that's the concern at the moment, really. I think going into the winter in Europe, um, that unless it gets windier, unless the weather changes, you're going to see quite large shutdowns of industrial production um, because they're not going to be able to afford the, the energy inputs. All of this has potential political implications as we go forward. And that's kind of where I want to end this discussion. But before I do, I have one question that I want to know from both of you as a non-economist. What does the legacy of near zero interest rates and quantitative easing more broadly since 2008 do to the politics of inflation in our time? And if we do have inflation going beyond the immediate term through mechanisms like the energy crisis, should we be concerned or does quantitative easing kind of make it better? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an economist. I'm genuinely asking how this works. The politics of interest rates are, are strange, aren't they? Because, you know, interest rates, in theory, are a tool of policy. They're not a goal in of themselves. So, you know, it's, you know, you use interest rates in theory to target variables like inflation, like unemployment, like steady growth. But in the certainly in the British discussion over the last couple of decades, interest rates have become low interest rates have become regarded as a good in themselves. Gordon Brown and Tony Blair in 2005, you know, their general election posters are boasting lowest interest rates in 50, 60 years. George Osborne as chancellor. Um, 2010 to 2016 regularly says, you know, we've got to we've got to keep fiscal policy tight. We've got to close the deficit. We've got to keep government try and lower government debt because we want to keep interest rates low. And so, your know, interest rates move from being this this tool to being something you're targeting. And yes, that's because of the politics of the housing market that you know low interest rates keep mortgages low and low interest rates keep asset prices high. And the asset price that we tend to think of in Britain is is house prices. There's been this strange transition in Britain from interest rates being a tool of policy to being something that policymakers think of as a as a target, that low interest rates are are good. And you know, the big picture is that interest rates are about the lowest they've been in 5,000 years, as far as we can tell. And they were about the lowest they'd been in 5,000 years, five years ago. And despite all of the talk of tapering of QE, of tightening, yes, we might get some rate hikes in Britain next year, you know, they're still going to be roughly the lowest they've been in 5,000 years by the mid-2020s. We live in a world of low interest rates. And that's not because policymakers necessarily want interest rates to be low. It's because of structural changes in the economy. There's more debt in the economy. We've got ageing societies and sort of debt and demographics play a big role in driving interest rates down. And increasingly, economists are realising that 
rising inequality plays a role in lowering interest rates. And you, you, know, you look at the changes in the global economy since the early 1980s, all of these are structural forces pushing down interest rates. And, you know, in, during the great moderation we were talking about before, we used to think of interest rates around 5% as normal. No one thinks of interest rates around 5% as normal anymore. You know, we think, what's the end point when the Bank of England does eventually start hiking interest rates? It's probably closer to 2 Two and a half percent, you know, half the level we once thought were was normal. I mean, that's just a you know, politics society is adjusting to a world of lower interest rates. The way to think about it is that it would simply be inconceivable now for central banks to respond to inflationary pressures, assuming that they're not transitory, by by raising interest rates to any significant degree. I mean, the ceiling is probably where Duncan is 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 saying, and maybe even to be honest, lower. There's simply far too much debt in the world economy to go back to anything that would have looked like normal monetary policy. That, in that sense, what happened after the crash of 2007, 2008, monetarily changed the world beyond the point of no return. We we can't be, go back to um to where we were. I think the other sort of paradoxical thing though is if we try and join the different stories together is you could look at it and say well in that moment in 2011 when oil prices had gone back above $100 again up to about 120-ish at um, one point and you can see it is translating into rising um, general inflation and Neither the Federal Reserve Board um, nor the, the the Bank of England responded by um, raising interest rates. If we concentrate on the, the Federal Reserve Board for a moment, if it had gone down that road and said, OK, look, we're, we're too worried about inflation, we have to try to normalise monetary policy. And there were people at the time who still thought it was possible to go back to pre-2008 monetary policy in the medium term to long term. The consequences of that would have been very deleterious for the the shale boom that was beginning in the United States. So in this sense, if the pre-2008 rise in oil and gas prices was an inflationary risk, actually, in order to escape from that, then the period of extremely low interest rates after 2008 was necessary because it was that that allowed capital to go into the the shale boom, to, to finance the shale boom, at very low rates of interest uh, and actually in some sense to prop up what was at the time fairly non-profitable um, shale oil production. So I think that we, we have to try to understand like that what have become the really complex dynamics between the way in which the energy issues work and the way in which monetary and debt issues work. And reading back to a script of the 1970s and the way it worked then really doesn't help us here either. So yet another major difference, just like the difference of the trade unions is the difference of the policy tools you would use if there is an inflationary surge. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's a good place to shift into what policymakers should do. Given the risk, I guess, of moving into a more structural inflationary surge in the energy markets, I mean, the the, the, the elephant in the room here is COP26 and the climate crisis. Are there conflicting imperatives on policymakers, say here in the UK, but also elsewhere in the world, in terms of the energy markets, is it, you know, on one hand, is it uh, in their interest to try and keep energy prices as low as possible because of their voter bases and to try and stop uh, inequality or fuel poverty? 
Does that conflict with the urge to undertake a green transition as fast as possible? Or are they complementary? I mean, you know, it's easy It's easy to score sort of cheap political points here, isn't it? That, you know, we want carbon to be more expensive because we want to use less carbon and get to, you know, net zero in the coming decades. But when prices spike really quickly, you know, that's also deeply uncomfortable. So you had that weird situation a few weeks ago of the British government subsidising CF Industries, a fertiliser producer, subsidising their energy costs, not because we had a shortage of fertiliser, but because a byproduct is CO2, which is then used in, you know, throughout the food supply chain. And we came really close to food supply chains really breaking down because of a shortage of CO2. So the government stepped in to subsidise the energy costs of um, this energy intensive business. I don't think in the long run, this is, this is a you know, a big inconsistency. Um, we want an energy transition, but you want that transition to be smooth um, rather than, you know, the kind of gas price spikes we've seen in recent weeks. And if Helen is right, and I think Helen is right, that, you know, fossil fuel energy plays a large part in our sort of macroeconomic inflationary cycles over the last three, four decades, then moving away from that is a good thing. And this is where these really low interest rates are very useful. That you know, it, it has never been as cheap for governments and for credit worthy firms to borrow as it is now. You know, we should be taking advantage of that and borrowing now to invest in change to a radically different energy mix. Yeah, I mean I think we've got to try and separate out here the the question of inflation from the question of energy costs and the amount for households that of their income that is going to be going on energy over the next decades now. Obviously there are moments when it's harder to separate out these two things. But I, I think that we're we're moving to a world in which energy costs generally are going to be higher. And as we move there, it is going to, and that is, and the dynamics of that are going to come from both fossil fuel energy and in the short to medium term from green energy and certainly from the interaction between the two as the transition takes place. As these dynamics develop, there is going to be an inflationary impact from that, but it doesn't necessarily have to be sort of endless so I think that the the question is is like how do governments manage the the politics of that and and it is pretty difficult. It is made more difficult by the fact that some of the rhetoric about the energy transition presents it as being easier than it is, both in terms of the overall levels of energy consumption and a sort of de facto sort of assumption that they can just kind of like stay as they are through this energy transition. And in terms of what energy costs are, are going to be proportionate to other costs in the um, economy overall and for households. So I think that there's a certain point in which part of the policy response to this has to be a bit of, if you like, truth telling about the complexities of the energy transition and just having voters understand that actually that what what is going on the the change that is taking um, place just penetrates through absolutely everything in the way in which the the world economy works it can't not because fossil fuel energy has been a and you might even say the central feature central underlying feature of 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 the economic world in which we know duncan a big theme of your book is policymakers muddling through various economic problems. 
Does that give you confidence about the kind of truth-telling that Helen is asking for there? It gives me very little confidence about the kind of truth-telling that Helen is asking for there. I mean, you know, we're expecting a general election in Britain in what, 2023, 2024? There's a political economy problem. When you look at the numbers from the Climate Change Committee, which is, you know, the government body, expert body technocrats who've said, okay, so you've legislated you want net zero by 2050, what money needs to be spent when? When you look at those numbers, you have a real political economy problem. So to hit those targets, you've got to spend substantial amounts of money throughout the 2020s and the early 2030s, and you start to see benefits by the 2040s. So you you spend a fortune insulating buildings throughout the 2020s, and then it becomes cheaper to heat those buildings, and your energy bills start to fall. But that's not until you 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 don't get that saving for two, two and a half decades. It's similar with vehicles. You spend a, a lot of money putting in the infrastructure for electronic vehicles, and then the running cost falls. But it's it's a political economy problem, spending lots of money in the next 10 years for benefits that come in 30 years time. It's an especially acute problem when you've got a government whose political base relies on older voters who in many cases, to be very, you know, grim about it, are going to be asked to spend more now and may not live to see the benefits in the late 2040s. And with an election, you know, on the horizon, 18 months, 36 months away, you know, the temptation for the government is going to be to try and delay any truth telling until at least after that election. And then once we get past that election, well, you know, the next election's only four years away. Now, I, I can see much diver and much muddle, and yeah, I, I'm not sure we're going to get the decisive actions we need, certainly not in the first half of the 2020s. The only thing I would say is if you go back and look at the, the 70s um, and the response, particularly actually of American politicians to the oil price shock, and Jimmy Carter's really notable in this respect. They obviously did make him very unpopular, which supports Duncan's um, argument. But there's a kind of like at a point in which the you know you actually have the American state you know like rationing energy, including to you know which individual states getting it, is is that it becomes a bit harder. I think to not it doesn't become harder not to muddle through, but it becomes a bit harder to talk in kind of like abstract niceties about um, energy issues. The crisis, in some sense, like forces some of the underlying difficulties, I think, to the surface. I mean, yeah, I once I once went and looked back through the, um, you know, Ipsos Mori, the polling organisation, you know, asked British people, you know, what are the top five issues facing the country sort of thing. You know, and that series goes back to the late 1960s. And, you know, what's interesting is energy, energy only rises up the political agenda literally when the lights go off. I mean, that, that's when people care. And, you know, if, if we have a winter in which we do have occasions in which the lights go off, then maybe that does create that real sense of crisis and maybe that does allow for more decisive political action. But, you know, it's just a shame you've got to get literally to the crisis point before you can build a political coalition to take the action we know it needs to be taken. And on that note, I think we should draw things to a close. I'd like to thank both our guests Duncan Weldon and Helen Thompson. And thank you to all of you for listening. Please do subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. You can also find the Mile End Institute on social media. And if you sign up to the mailing list on our website, you'll always hear first about future events.